Good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you so much to Gary and the team for leading us, uh, not just this evening, but this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn me to Genesis chapter 39. We're carrying on in our series in the life of Joseph. And we're looking this morning, or this evening, as was mentioned this morning, at uh, Joseph in Potiphar's house uh, as he successfully resists Potiphar's wife. Before we read there, uh, read the passage. Let me start with an, an apology. Uh, if you know anything about English football, you know that you'll never walk alone is the slogan of the best football team ever, Liverpool. And so let me apologize to all the Man U supporters that your team doesn't have such a nice slogan. Uh, but it is a, a phrase I think captures well what we see in this passage and a comfort that every Christian has that not even a Liverpool supporter really has. I'll explain that a bit now, but let's turn our focus to this passage, and we look at what the Lord can teach us. Uh, Genesis chapter 39, starting from verse 1. This is God's Word. Let's hear it. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, and an, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the God, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord had caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight, and attended him, and made him overseer of his house, and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was in all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eye on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as I heard that, that I, and as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she, then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. 
And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. At least so far in the reading of God's Word may reform our lives to its truth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, just having read your Word now, we pray that you would teach us your ways, that you'd lead us into your truth, into your paths. We lift up our soul even to you this evening. We entrust ourselves to you and ask that you would lead and guide us as we try and work our way through this passage, as we try and apply it to our lives. We pray, dear Lord, that you would not remember our sin, the sins of our youth, our transgressions. We pray instead that you'd remember your mercy and your steadfast love as they have been of old. We pray, dear Lord, that you'd be good and gracious to us for the sake of your goodness. Even now, as we consider this text, we pray, dear Lord, that our eyes would be set upon you, toward you, and that you would keep our feet on the straight and narrow, on your paths to know you more and more. We ask this not because we are deserving, but because you are gracious and kind. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Be sure of this, you will be tempted to abandon God. Be 100% sure of this, you will in this life be tempted to abandon God, to, to flee from His precepts, His ways, His truths. Perhaps it will come through temptation like we saw this morning, lust, perhaps pride, perhaps covetousness, envy, the pleasures of the flesh. Regardless of the kind of temptation, you will be tempted to abandon God. You'll be tempted to think like Eve when she saw that fruit and think to herself, well, it looks good. It looks delightful. It looks like it can make me wise. You'll be tempted to abandon God. Perhaps, however, that temptation will come through the trials you face the evil that astounds you, the suffering that assails you, the, the sickness that lays you low, the, the death that horrifies you, the poverty that lays you low, the, the injustice that, that angers you, the cruelty that victimizes you. Regardless of the trial, the affliction, the hardship, you'll be tempted at that point to abandon God. 
You'll be tempted to listen to Job's wife in Job 2.9. Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Make no mistake about it, in this life you'll be tempted to abandon God. And the question is, how will you survive? How do we survive the temptations and trials of life that will want to lead us away from our God? And it's at this point where the, the example of Joseph is so instructive for us because here in our passage, Joseph encounters both trial and temptation and he doesn't abandon God. He doesn't flee from God. He doesn't turn away from God. Now what we learn from Joseph is that you can survive these trials and temptations only if God is near and if God is present, and only if you live in light of His presence. May I suggest you, dear friends, to survive God's dark providences, which includes those afflictions and those temptations. You need to seek after God's divine presence. Why? Because God's presence makes the difference. That's what we see in our passage in Genesis 39. Two themes really are emphasized in this passage. Two themes dominate the landscape. On the one hand, we see clearly emphasized the presence of God. The entire passage is bracketed by His presence. In verse 2, we see that the Lord was with Joseph, and as a result, He succeeded. In verse 3, we are told again that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that He did to succeed in His hands. And then even at the end of the narrative, the same ideas are repeated. Verse 21, the Lord was with him, and as a result, he was successful in the eyes of the keeper of the prison. Verse 23, the point is made again. The Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it to succeed. Do you see, this passage is actually all about God, about God's presence and what God is able to do in the life of one of his people. As Joseph finds himself in slavery and in prison and in seduction, God is with him and God's presence makes a difference. But on the other hand, we, not just, we don't only see God's presence, we, we see something of Joseph's purity. Despite the bracketed uh, emphasis upon God's presence, the heart of this passage evidences the result of God's presence with him. And the result is Joseph's purity. His loyalty and his devotion to God. See, not only was God with Joseph, but importantly, Joseph was with God. He, he lived before God. He lived for God. As you will see, when he was faced with slavery, he worked hard as unto the Lord. When he was faced with seduction, he sought to honor the Lord. And when he was faced with suffering, unjust suffering, he entrusted himself to the Lord. See, the point is this. When we look at the life of Joseph, when we see his difficulties, the dangers he's faced, the disappointments that assailed him, what we see made the difference was God's presence. Uh, Clinton made reference this morning to the key to victorious living. Well, may I suggest to you that key is God's presence. Closeness and intimacy with God. 
Not just knowing things about God, but knowing God in closeness, in intimacy, communion, relationship. That's what makes the difference. And herein, I think, lies the overarching application for us in this particular narrative. Do we seek God's presence in life? And is His presence evident? Is His presence making a difference in us as we face trials and temptations all around us? Do we seek His presence and live in an awareness of the God who is in you? May I suggest to you again that what we learn from Joseph is that the only way to survive trials and temptations is when God is present and when we live in light of His presence. To survive God's dark providences, we need to seek God's divine presence. We need to set the Lord before Him. We need to eye His providential hand, as the Puritans used to say. We need to pursue His presence. We need to seek His face. Because it's His presence that at the end of the day makes a difference. David, who we saw this morning, fell into grievous sin, eventually had to learn this lesson, I think. In Psalm 16, uh, David said this in verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me, because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. I think you can make a case that David fell because the Lord was not set before him. The Lord was not at his right hand, or not in his thinking at least. And may I suggest to you, this ought to be the habit of all of God's people. Wherever we find ourselves, whenever we're tried and tempted, we ought to seek the Lord. Listen to Psalm 123, verse 1 and 2. To you I lift my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens, behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of maid servants to the hand of their mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till He has mercy on us. See, these verses are describing an intentional, conscious habit of living before God, setting our eyes before God. Uh, the Puritan Henry Scudder, influenced guys like John Owen, described this as a vital part of our walk with God. He said, when you set God before you and walk as in His sight, then you walk with, before, after, and according to God. Uh, do you know how Paul would describe this? Paul, I think, would describe it this way. He would describe it as praying without ceasing. Living every moment with a God consciousness in dialogue with God. Living every day as before God in relationship with God. Uh, theologians have called this habit, uh, with the, have described with this Latin quorum day, which means before God. And R.C. Sproul actually makes the case that this is at the essence of Christianity to live quorum Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. And may I suggest to you that what we see in Joseph is a man who lived quorum Deo. A man who lived before God's face, a man who lived in His presence, a man who lived in close relationship with God, and it's that closeness that again made the difference. 
Now, we know that God is omnipresent, don't we? The Bible is quite clear. If you go to the deepest seas and you go to the highest heaven, God is there. We know that. And even as Christians, we know that God is with us. He indwells us by His Holy Spirit. He looks over us as, as His children with favor and kindness. We know intellectually that He is everywhere. But the question this evening is, does that knowledge make a practical difference? See, the Christian, far greater than any Liverpool supporter can say, you'll never walk alone. God is with His people. A.W. Tozer illustrated this wonderfully, I think. He says there's a difference between being in someone's presence and having your face turned toward that person. See, it's possible for us to, to be in the room with someone. It's possible that you can be with someone and say you were in their presence. But it's also possible to be in a room with someone and have your back turned toward them and never face them in personal fellowship. I realize, beloved, this world is a room where God is present. The only question is, is your face turned toward Him? See, Joseph in our passage, not only has, has God's face been turned to him, but God, Joseph's face is turned toward God and made the difference in how he worked as a slave, made the difference of how he resisted seduction, and made the difference in how he endured suffering. And so as we focus in on the passage, I want you to see three things this evening relating to God's presence with His people. Firstly, God's presence makes the difference in how we work. In verse 1 to 6, we see the success of Joseph in Potiphar's house. Despite the trial of being sold as a slave, there is no indication that Joseph is grumbling or complaining here. Instead, we see Joseph working as a slave as unto the Lord, with, with the result being he excels. He is made overseer of Potiphar's house. That is, he's made the manager, he the, the, the steward. And, and moreover, because of Joseph, Potiphar is blessed abundantly. And, and realize this isn't something that happened overnight. No, Joseph was a slave in Potiphar's house, some say about 10 years and his success came after faithful work and service. Now just imagine for a second, you're a 17-year-old boy, you're a slave, you've been taught, been bought, and you now have to learn a new language, you have to learn the new customs of this, these people, you have to learn your new tasks, you need to learn how your, the attitude and, and temper of your master. All of this would require diligence, effort, See, Joseph's success came about by hard work, hard work carried about by God's help. Look at verse 3, the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. There's no idea here that Joseph just sat back and God just blessed him. No, the idea seems to be that Joseph worked. He was busy. He gave himself to his work and he worked as unto the Lord. Now, how can I say that? Look at the start of verse 3. His master Potiphar saw that the Lord was with him. Now, we don't know the details of how this is possible, but it seems that Potiphar has here an awareness of Yahweh, an awareness that God is with Joseph. How is it possible? How is it possible for this pagan to recognize that all of these blessings are due to God's presence? 
Well, it's possible only if Joseph declared with both his works and his words that all he does, he does as unto the Lord. Now, there's a very clear implication for us, application for us here, isn't there? If you're a Christian, know this, you are called to work as unto the Lord. Uh, Colossians 3 22, Paul says, bondservants, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. See, Joseph is an example of what Paul is talking about here. Just as Joseph worked before the Lord and for the Lord, we too are called to work for the Lord. And you know what happens when you do this sometimes, not always, but sometimes, is God gets the glory. God gets the honor. This is a principle we see in 1 Peter 2.12. Peter says there, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak out against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In fact, it not only glorifies God, it it pleases Him. Look, Look at what he says in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to do good to the good and gentle. Also to the unjust, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. Tell me, what's another way to describe mindful of God? Quorum Deo, right? Living before God, aware of God. For this is a gracious thing, he says, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you suffer and are beaten for it, you endure? For, for sin, and you need to endure for it. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. See, God is glorified and pleased in it when His people live and work as unto Him. And, and dear beloved of God, that's the challenge for us from Joseph's example here. In our work, do we work as before the Lord? Do we work for the Lord? And when people see us in our homes and our workplace, do they see something stamped substantially different about us? Do they see those who work as if God is near? As if God is with us? And realize they should see this. They should, this not, they should see this not because we're just following the example of Joseph. No, we should do this. And they should see this because we're following Jesus. In verse 21 of 1 Peter 2, Peter carries on. He says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you may follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was the seed found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
that we might live for Him and to Him in righteousness. See, if God is with us and gave Himself to us in Christ, then it should make a difference in how we work, in how we live, in how we carry ourselves to a watching world. In Joseph's example, we see what difference it makes when you live and work before the Lord and for the Lord, before the Lord and for Him. So that's the first thing I want you to see. God's presence makes a difference in how we work. The second thing I want you to see, and this is the one you guys have been looking out for since this morning, is God's presence makes a difference in how we run. God's presence makes a difference in how we run. That is to say, God's presence is what makes the difference in how we face temptation. Now we run from those temptations that seek to ensnare us. See, after the height of his success in verse 1 to 6, we see the seduction of Joseph by Potiphar's wife, and we're told at the end of verse 6 that Joseph was, was handsome in form and appearance. It would seem that his success, coupled with his looks, occasioned Potiphar's interest, Potiphar's wife's interest, rather, and herein, I think, is an immediate lesson for us. At the height of success, even in the midst of God's blessing, Sin and temptation are ever near to lead us away from God. See, we must not think that if we've been successful, if we've been blessed by God, that therefore we need not fear falling into sin. No, as Paul warned us in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, was read this morning, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And so with that warning in mind, we need to look at Joseph's example and see what lessons there are to learn from resisting temptation. And there's five I want you to see. Firstly, to resist temptation, we must refuse temptation immediately. We must refuse temptation immediately. Verse 8, after being approached by Potiphar's wife, we're told that he immediately refused her. No indication is given here that he, he thought about her proposal. No, no, he didn't entertain the thought. He didn't weigh the pros and the cons. He didn't allow time for it to sit in his heart and, and dwell there and stir his affections. No, he refused immediately. And dear friends, there's much to learn here. If we are to overcome sin and temptation, we need to refuse it outright. We cannot play around with it. We, we cannot allow it to gain ground in our thoughts or our affections or our hearts. Remember how Jesus taught us to pray and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Our desire should be not only to be delivered from evil, dear friends, but our desire should be to not even enter into temptation. Our desire should be to stay as far as we can from that hour of temptation. Uh, the Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote an excellent treatise called uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And guess what his first remedy is? Keep the greatest distance from sin. That's it. Don't, don't go near it. Don't play with it. Don't entertain it. No, do as Joseph does and refuse it immediately. Uh, Paul says in Romans 12, 9, abhor what is evil, that is, hate sin, and in your hatred of that sin, refuse it. 
Brooks says, it is our wisest and safest course against sin to stand at the farthest distance from sin. And the difference between David and Joseph sadly illustrates the importance of this. Whereas Joseph refused immediately, we saw this morning David entertained it. And one of the reasons we fall into sin so easily is because like David and unlike Joseph, we allow one look to become a thought, and that thought to become a desire, that desire to become action, leading to ultimate devastation and destruction. And therefore, we need to immediately approach sin with hesitation, with with a desire to get away from it. But not just that, refuse temptation immediately, but also refuse temptation realistically. Uh, What I mean with realistically is this, understand what sin is. In verse 7 to 8, Joseph understands what sin is. He, He understands that it's foolishness. He says, he says to her, my master has promoted me. He's been good to me. He's withheld nothing from me. How then could I do this? How could I sin against him? He understands that this is foolish. And so too we must see sin, right? God has been good to us. He's been gracious. He's given me life. He's blessed me. How can I sin against him? It's foolish. In fact, verse 9, he rightly calls it wickedness. That's a great evil that would describe something that's, that's evil. And not just evil, it's disastrous, it's harmful. And what we learn here is in order to overcome temptation, we need to be realistic and honest about sin. See it for what it is, foolishness, wickedness. Sin is often portrayed as something which is innocent and delightful, good, beneficial. It's it's pleasurable, it's profitable, but it is what the Puritans call a painted poison. The Bible is clear, sin defiles, Isaiah 59.2. It it deceives, Hebrews 3.13. It disgraces, Proverbs 14.34. It defrauds us of anything good, Jeremiah 5.25. And it delivers us ultimately over to death, James 1.15. And, and therefore, dear friends, if you want to stand any chance against sin, you need to be honest about it. Approach it realistically. See it for what it is. Foolishness. Wickedness. But thirdly, to refuse temptation, refuse it Fearfully. That is to say we must refuse sin not only because it's foolish, not only because it's wicked, not only because it's disastrous, but more importantly because it's against God. In in verse 8, Joseph asks this question, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? F.B. Meyer on this passage says, that should be our motto, motto in every hour of temptation. How can I do this evil? How can I look at that? How can I touch that? How can I consider this this great wickedness and sin against God? My Savior, my Lord. See, we must refuse sin out of a fear of God, a a reverence for Him. Proverbs 16.6 says, By the fear of the Lord one turns away from evil. The reason often we don't turn from sin and evil is because we're not fearing God. 
See, this was true of Joseph. Out of a fear for God, out of a loyalty for him, out of reverence, he refused Potiphar's wife. Joseph knew what David had to learn, and that is this, that all sin is ultimately against God. Remember how David confessed in Psalm 51, verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Dear friends, when the hour of temptation comes, when sin draws near to entice you, remember that God sees. Remember that God is near. Remember that that sin is against Him. It's an offense to Him. Uh, when Jeremiah Burroughs argues that sin is the evil of evils, he points out that sin is the only thing in all of creation that is the opposite of God. He says, for there is nothing else except sin that is not from God, not by God, and not for God. And, and therefore we need to refuse it outright because this is the opposite to God. This is against Him. It is an offense why then would we sin against God, against His goodness, His love, His grace, His mercy? So, so refuse temptation fearfully in awe of God. Fourthly, refuse temptation carefully. Look at verse 4. We see that Potiphar didn't let go, although Joseph refused her. Uh, she still pursued him. And what a great description that is of sin. Sin by its nature does not stand still. It always pursues. It won't rest until it consumes and ruins. And, and therefore, care is needed. Uh, Potiphar's wife pursued him day by day, and Joseph day by day refused her. He, he, and more than that, he, he carefully avoided her. Now look at the end of verse 10. He would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. Uh, the idea seems to be this, that Joseph was carefully, he watched out for her, he avoided her, he stayed to, try, he stayed to clear, uh, stay clear of her. And that's how we ought to treat every sin, carefully watching against it. Isn't that what Proverbs 4.23 exhorts? Guard your heart with all vigilance. Keep watch, for from it flows the source of life. Isn't that how Jesus exhorts us in Matthew 26.45? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And isn't that how even Peter exhorts us? Be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, crawls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Uh, see, the Puritans called this the art and the discipline of, of watchfulness. Owen described it as this universal carefulness and diligence that watches over our hearts, our desires, our ways that takes heeds of, of Satan's attempts, his allurements, his baits, and guards against every occasion of sin in this world. See, this carefulness or this watchfulness is necessary because let's be honest, so often when we enter into temptation and fall into it, it's often because of a lack of care a lack of discipline, a lack of wisdom, and therefore refuse temptation carefully. Fifthly and finally, refuse temptation 
ruthlessly. Uh, Potiphar's wife is clearly a desperate housewife. Uh, she's relentless. When he's alone, she grabs hold of him. Uh, and at that moment, at the moment where the temptation is at the, its highest aggression, Joseph acts decisively. I want to say even ruthlessly because he flees and he flees regardless of the cost, regardless of what he must leave behind, regardless of what the consequence will be. And realize this is what overcoming temptation requires. A ruthlessness, a violence against sin. Especially sexual sin. Remember what Jesus taught in Mark 9.43. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Why? Because it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God maimed than to be tossed into hell with all your sinful limbs. See, Jesus here is describing a, a ruthlessness when it comes to sin. A, a violence that we even see a little bit of in Joseph. And so, dear friends, dear beloved of God, is this how we actually approach sin? Is this how we run from sin? Do we refuse sin immediately when it starts showing its allurements? Do we, are we realistic about what it is as foolishness, as wickedness? Are we fearful of it because it's against the God we fear? Are we careful in how we live so that we would avoid it? And are we ruthless against it when it pops its ugly head? Now, perhaps you failed in this. Perhaps you're failing in this. And what is the hope for you in that moment? I want to suggest to you the hope, again, is God's presence. You need His help. I'm not trying to exhort you with five moralistic lessons. No, I'm trying to show you what you need to overcome sin, and what you need is God, His grace, His strength, because His presence makes the difference. Just as His presence with Joseph caused success in all He did, so God's presence is what gives success against sin. See, Joseph resisted temptation because God was with him, and he was with God. And again, this is something I think Joseph or David came to learn. Uh, psalm 25 has been on my heart for the last week and a half. And in that psalm, we see David lifting his soul to God and asking God to lead him into truth and his paths and righteousness. He asked God to, to not remember his sins, the sins of his youth. I think referring to Bathsheba. And he asked God to, to lead him, to remember his steadfast love, his, his goodness, to, to pardon him. And at the verse 15 he says, My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. How is it possible that you can be plucked out of the net of temptation? Only if your eyes are to the Lord. Only if you're in his presence and you're seeking him in that. David came to learn, I think, that survival requires nearness to God. And so to run from sin, to run from temptation, you need to run to God. You need to rest in Him and rely upon Him, especially because you have a God who has been tempted without sin. 
You have one who is in the heavenly is able to, to supply you with grace and mercy in your time of need. I've run out of time. Let's move on quickly to the last point. Third thing I want you to see is God's presence makes a difference also in how we suffer. We've seen the success of Joseph in Potiphar's house. We've seen the seduction of, of Joseph by Potiphar's wife. In verse 13 to 23, we see the suffering of Joseph under both Potiphar and his wife. In verse 13 to 18, Potiphar's wife is, a, is in her vindictive fury plotting against Joseph. You know that saying, hell hath no fury like a woman's scorn. And in verse 19 and 20, Potiphar in fiery anger unjustly casts him into prison. And I don't want to get into the debate of whether Potiphar was actually believing his wife. Uh, he's angry, but we don't know who he's angry with. But the more important thing to see here is how Joseph responded. And, and quite intentionally, I think there's no signs again of him, of him complaining or grumbling or even defending himself. Actually, we would have wanted him to defend himself. Surely that's what we would have done. Yet there's no evidence of a, a woeful despair or a hopeless despondency by him. No, no, the idea we get of Joseph here is, as before, he entrusts himself to the Lord. When he was a slave, he was a slave as unto the Lord. And now as a prisoner, he lives as unto the Lord. And the result was, again, the Lord was with him and blessed him. Now, there are two lessons I think we must learn from this. Firstly, faithfulness to God doesn't exclude us from suffering. We must not misread this narrative and think that, oh, if I'm faithful, God will bless me. He will give me success. Now, despite him being faithful, Joseph still suffered. He was still unjustly tossed into a prison. Faithfulness doesn't preclude us from suffering. I think of Jesus, right? The, the most faithful one to have ever lived, he was a man of sorrows, of suffering. But secondly, tied to that, a nearness to God enables us in our suffering. How is it that Joseph simply, again, entrusts himself to God? How is it that despite this unjust victimization, he still trusts God? We would struggle with it. I would. I, I would get angry. I, I've been faithful to you, God. How can I still get the short end of the stick? I, I'm sure you feel like this at times. Perhaps there's no blatant sin in your life. You've been faithful, yet again and again and again, trial assails you, trials fall upon you, suffering, difficulties. And the question is, how can we, in those trials, keep trusting God? How can we keep, like Joseph, entrusting ourselves to Him? Well, I think the question is answered again by God's presence. We can entrust ourselves to Him because we know we never walk alone. We can entrust ourselves to Him because we know that He is with and for His people, we know that His steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 136, 26 times tells us His steadfast love endures forever. And even Joseph is apparently reminded of this. Verse 21, the Lord was with him and showed him steadfast love. 
Remember what that word means. It means covenant love. God is with His people with a loyal, long-suffering love. And dear friends, has God not shown that love to us in Jesus? Have we not been recipients of that love? Think of Jesus. He's, he's, a, he's the, the picture towards where Joseph points us to. Joseph was a favorite son, yes, but Jesus was the eternally begotten son. Loved by the Father. Joseph, yes, was sold into slavery, became a servant, but Jesus willfully became a servant. Joseph faced temptation from a devilish woman. Jesus faced the devil himself. In fact, he, he entered into temptation as our substitute. Joseph was unjustly sentenced to prison. Jesus was unjustly sentenced to death. Why? Because God loves His people with a steadfast love. He doesn't give up on His people. He's loyal toward them. He is with them. God in Christ is still with us. That's the beauty and the wonder of the gospel. Without the gospel, God's face isn't turned toward us because His anger is still upon us. But in the gospel, that anger is taken away. He, he looks upon us with favor. And without the gospel, we too also cannot have our face turned toward Him because we do still be dead in our sin. So, see, because of the gospel, we can be assured that God is with us. Because of the gospel, we can be assured that we can turn to God. And know that his face is toward us. Did Jesus not say, Matthew 28, verse 20, Behold, I am with you always. And I'd venture to say even that that is enough. When you face those trials and temptations, that should be enough. I love this illustration by David Kingdon. He says this, the presence of the Lord with us is more important than knowing what God's purposes is for us. To an infant, the presence of parents is much more needful than to know that their plan, what their plans are for the future. See, dear believer, take comfort to know that God is with His people. Regardless of the future, regardless of the trials and temptations, rest assured that despite all of it, you're in His loving hands. He is with His people. Dear Christian, take comfort from this truth that God never leaves His people. He never forsakes His people. His love never ceases. And therefore, you never walk alone. He's with us. His love abides with us. And so, if that is true... Live for Him. Turn your face to Him. Live as before His very face, especially in trials and temptations. In fact, echo the words that we'll sing a bit later. In life, in death, O Lord, abide with me. Abide with me. Abide with me. And may it be said of us that we were very clearly people who lived as before God that there's something different about us because God is with us and we are with Him. Let's pray. Dear Father, we do want to thank You for the examples of Your Word. 
Thank you for both the examples of men like David and Joseph that so beautifully coalesced for us this, this day. And we pray, dear Lord, that we would take these to heart, that we would learn, that we would see ourselves in these figures and where we fall short, that we would look to you for help. And dear Lord, that by your Spirit and because of your Son, we would be a people who live daily, moment by moment, mindful of you. That we'd be aware that we're not in this alone, but that your everlasting arms uphold us and carry us. Thankful for the truth, again, that your steadfast love endures. That we can even this evening rest in it. But help us to not just rest in these beautiful truths, help us to live in light of them, to set our face to you, and to know, as David even praised and comes to realize, that you keep us. And so help us in this, we pray, for the glory of your name. Amen.